Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 103, and today we'll be chatting with Ruby Lee. Ruby is a product partner at KPCB Edge, a team of builders investing in seed stage founders working on emerging areas of technology. While studying at Stanford, Ruby got into startups through entrepreneurship and business groups. She was also part of the founding team of the Dorm Room Fund, a student-run investment group backed by First Round Capital. After school, Ruby joined Google as an associate product manager through their APM program started over 10 years ago by Marissa Mayer. While at Google, Ruby worked on the Chrome team and then decided to join a smaller team and worked on Project Phi. Ruby was then approached by a friend to come help launch a new seed investment group out of KPCB. It's been just over one year since KPCB Edge launched. Ruby joins us to share her story, some of the initiatives they've launched over the last year, advice she has for new product managers and entrepreneurs looking to create new products, what they look for while investing, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hack to start drop us an email at heyathacktostart.com, or share your feedback right in iTunes with a review, good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Ruby. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you guys for having me. Both Franco and I are extremely excited to have you on. We, we want to dive deep into your experience both at Google and KPCB. But before we dive into that, where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a town in Massachusetts called Shrewsbury, a pretty small town about an hour west of Boston. Um, so grew up there. And then in 2009, I moved to the Bay Area to start undergrad at Stanford. So when I started undergrad, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to major in. I knew I liked math and science and maybe wanted to do something engineering. Um, but to pick my specific major, I remember the summer after my freshman year, I'd taken a bunch of sort of like intro engineering classes. And I went through the course catalog for the engineering majors that were offered and basically just looked at what classes I would have to take and looked at which ones sounded interesting to me and ended up deciding that the bioengineering classes sounded the most interesting. So I did that for my undergrad major. But as I was sort of doing internships over the summers, a lot of the work I was doing was either in research labs or I worked at a startup called Halcyon Molecular where I was doing wet lab stuff. And I was just not super into that day to day, but I got a little bit exposed through some classes to biocomputation. And so I decided that that was way more interesting to me. I liked, you know, frankly, being able to do a lot of the work on the computer. And so I started taking more classes in biocomputation, decided I need to build up, you know, more knowledge around CS to do that. And so um, Stanford has a program called the Coterm Program. And I applied for that where you can basically get your master's degree while you're in school there for undergrad. And so I applied for the computer science one and ended up doing that. And so that's basically what I studied. I did bioengineering and computer science. That sounds uh, really, really cool. So how did your passion for tech and like entrepreneurship really develop? For tech and entrepreneurship, I guess, it just developed as a kid. I mean, I wouldn't have classified them as tech and entrepreneurship, but I love playing computer games, um, mostly like online games. I love Neopets.com, if you've ever heard of it. I play that all the time. I think through Neopets is the first time where I learned how to make a website because you could make a website for your virtual pet. 
And so after I learned how to do that, I liked making websites. And then, you know, like the neighborhood kids, we would always get together and sell lemonade or whatever in order to buy a basketball hoop for our driveway or something like that. And so I think that just sort of was like, you know, in my personality. And then when I went to Stanford, through what I just described, learned more about computer science as a, as a result of that, you know, started becoming more interested in the technology scene. And it's just something that sort of happens through osmosis when you're there, um, getting exposed to the big companies and stuff like that. I was also part of a group at Stanford called BASES, uh, stands for the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. I was pretty involved in that all four years and just met a lot of cool people who, you know, when I was a freshman were older and then they went on to start companies when I was in school and just learning from them and seeing what they were working on is, you know, really interesting to me. So I think combination of those experiences really helped. That's super cool. So on that note, while you were in school, you were on the investment team of the Dormroom Fund. Can you tell us a bit more about the Dormroom Fund and what that experience was like for you? Yeah, sure. So Dormroom Fund is a, a student-run venture fund backed by First Round Capital. First Round does seed investments for a lot of great companies. And um, I was involved in Dormroom Fund when they were just starting out in the Bay Area. So they had, they had a branch in Philly already. And then we were starting the Bay Area branch, which was a combination of students from Stanford and Cal. Um, so that was great. Got the chance to sort of sit on the other side of the table and meet students who were in the early phases of starting a company and work with other um, students who are interested on the investing side. And actually, one of the partners on my team right now, Anjanae, both of us, we had met in bases, but we, we both worked on Dorman Fund together. That's awesome. So you were then an associate product manager at Google uh, and working on, on two awesome teams that I want to dive more into in just a second. But, you know, first of all, how did you create the opportunity to, to be uh, an associate product manager and, and create the opportunity to work at Google? Yeah. So at Google, I was part of a program called the Associate Product Manager Program or APMs. And the history behind that program is back when Google was, you know, very young, Marissa Meyer, who is now the CEO at Yahoo, she uh, had a bet with Larry, which was, you know, most of their PMs at the time were folks out of business school. And Marissa had a bet that said, hey, I bet I can take new grads who have a technical background and create a program that trains them to be better product managers than the ones we have today. And that's what she did. And I think the program is now about 12 or 13 years old and it has grown ever since. So clearly it's a sign that it's, it's worked. And I first heard about the program because they were on campus recruiting. And I frankly actually hadn't really heard much about product management or what that role entailed, but I showed up. And what I took away from it was that basically it was a role at Google specifically where, you know, people with technical background come in, but play a big part in shaping, you know, the final product of, of lots of engineering work. And um, you'd kind of be sort of the, the point person to figure out what to build, right? And then also respond to user feedback and work with engineers and work with legal and work with design. And it was appealing to me because I had spent a lot of my time at Stanford doing that role for a student group where our product wasn't a piece of software or hardware, but it was um, a bunch of different entrepreneur, entrepreneurship-related events and competitions, and that was basis. And so I was basically thinking of it as, well, what if I took that role that I played and did that for a technology product, which obviously I had already been excited about technology at the time. And, and so I wanted to try it out. So I applied and then went through the interview process and ultimately ended up uh, taking the offer there. 
So as I mentioned, you know, you were part of the Chrome team and then later Project Fi. So what was it like working on both of those teams? And, and can you elaborate a little bit more on maybe some of the biggest lessons or challenges uh, that you faced, you know, while working with those teams? Sure. So Chrome was my first team. So you do two one-year rotations. So Chrome was my first rotation. And it was a great first rotation because Chrome, I believe, is, you know, one of the best run teams at Google when it comes to product management. The PM org there was experienced. A lot of them had been former APMs. I had a great mentor. I had a great manager. My man, my first manager there, Avni Shah, actually, she was one of the first APMs. I think she had been there for 10 or 11 years when I was under her. So they understood what it meant to be completely new. And they also sort of understood the culture of PM at Google and APMs. So at Chrome, what I mostly learned was PMing tactics from from the best. Um, and so Chrome was like established, obviously, they had processes for, you know, this is how you launch a feature. This is how our build process works. Um, you know, this is how we manage our bugs, all that sort of stuff. So I worked on on three projects there in, in different stages. One of the projects I worked on was in implementation phase when I had gotten there. And then in the time I was there, we launched it. And that project was Google, Google Now notifications and Chrome. And then another project was improvements to the new tab page, which were earlier on when I started. And I went through more of the implementation phase of the team and experimentation before launching it. And then another one of the projects I worked on was very early stage in the prototype phase. And we took it sort of to the middle of implementation before the end of my rotation. So what was nice about that is I was working on a few different projects at a time, but they were all in different stages of the product lifecycle. So I got to experience different challenges of being a PM at each of those stages. I think some of the things I learned there were, you know, the role that you can play in pushing prototypes forward as PM, especially if you're tactical, that's helpful. And then also once you're in the experimentation phase, how important it is to figure out what you're going to measure, why you're going to measure these metrics ahead of time, making sure you're building the instrumentation to do these things. And a lot of that is so that you can build up the analysis that you need to convince other folks that, hey, this is something that we should be adding to the product, right? Um, and then the launch phase is a whole other set of things to think about, like, especially at a big company like Google, you really want to have all your ducks in a row. So, you know, everything from making sure security reviews are passed, privacy reviews are passed, that you can globalize this feature for different languages, like tons and tons of little things that honestly, you know, at a startup, you probably would skip through or accelerate through a lot of these things. But I think they're just good to know because if you're going to ever scale a product to millions of users, these are all the sorts of things that PM has to keep in mind, right? So at Google or at, in Chrome, I think it was a really great foundation. Then for my next rotation, uh, that was Project Five, like you mentioned. And when you're in the APM program, you get to pick your second rotation. And so I wanted to look for something that was earlier stage than Chrome because Chrome had already launched by the time I joined. Obviously, they had like a billion users or something. And everything I worked on was more features than, hey, let's launch this whole new service or whole new product from the beginning. And so Project Fi is Google's wireless carrier network. And it's an NVNO, which means we don't own the actual towers. We lease from uh, T-Mobile and Sprint and then build a carrier network on top of that. So when I joined, we were in the midst of building that out, and it was just a much different environment, the Chrome team, because it was much smaller. The team was like definitely less than 100 people. 
And a lot of the processes just weren't in place. Like we had to figure out how to get on a regular engineering cycle. We had to design out a ton of the product and, you know, figure out go to market and like all of that stuff. So I felt like it was great because I got to apply some of the learnings from my first rotation directly in the second and have a much bigger impact on actually launching something huge. And then we launched and then, um, then I joined Edge. But I guess you might have more questions there. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll get to KPCB in, in just a sec. But I mean, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper. So kind of continuing that, on that thread, do you have any other insights for other product managers or entrepreneurs around building and launching products? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of lessons. I think one that I would point out explicitly is the importance of, and this might just be a personal preference of mine, but I love having really long, really intense beta periods before doing a full launch. I think it's helpful for a few reasons. So in Phi, we had an internal beta of probably like hundreds, maybe even like thousand people before we rolled the service out. And I think, I mean, it's helpful from a lot of different angles, but when you have a beta, you can set expectations. Like the bar is much lower, right? Because when you're, when you're opening things up for a beta, you can be very clear about, hey, this is totally new. We know there's going to be tons of bugs. Like you guys are great to be, the beta users are great to be dedicating time and energy to giving us feedback and trying things out early. And we know it's not going to be perfect. So it sets the bar a little lower, takes some of the pressure off. But then you just get a lot more feedback to iterate on things before you sort of like open up the floodgates. And I think it also helps motivate the team because now instead of just having internal users, you start having real people using your product, which I think is just like a huge motivator for, for the entire team that's you know toiling away. And everyone gets visibility into the feedback that that people are giving. So sort of these internally held assumptions that get debated can be either validated or challenged with real with real evidence. And I think like there's a company called Euro that's written a great article about their practices for their beta. They also had a really long beta period before they <clears throat> launched their their extended wireless router. So I'm a big believer in in doing being really thoughtful about having a long beta phase before you launch product. I think that's that's one takeaway that I have. That's awesome. That's that's really good feedback. And so you know, like like you mentioned a second ago, um, you're you're now a product partner at at KPCB Edge. So can you tell us a bit more about KPCB and 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 sort of the Edge program there? What makes it so special? And and also just you know, how did you create the opportunity to to join the team there? Yeah, sure. So KPCB is a mentor fund. Um, it's been around for a long time. The, there's a few different teams that are part of KP. Uh, there's the venture team who typically does, you know, series A, maybe some series B investments. And they are the ones who, this is like many funds ago, we did Google, we did Genentech. And so the venture fund's been around for a long time. And then there's a, there's a growth team that does even later stage investments than the venture team. And then there's Edge, which is the seed stage team at KP. We're the newest team. We've been around for about a year. And our mission is to back great founders even earlier than, than the venture team typically does in a few specific areas. So I personally here focus on digital health, mobile marketplaces, and the future of work. The last one is a focus on software tools and services that help the growing segment of freelancers and independent contractors, contingent workers, we call them in the U.S., 
And then my partners here also focus on virtual reality, drones, blockchain, computer vision, and robotics. So we, like I said, we back great founders in the space, in these spaces. Um, And then what makes it a little unique is that we actually split our time between investing and building software tools. So the software tools we build are a mix of tools for our portfolio companies, not for core product or anything. So we're not a consulting service, but we want to make it easier to do things like recruiting or financing, leveraging the network and the resources that KP has. We also build some internal tooling, and then we have an app called Office Hours, which is basically the Edge mobile app. And anyone on iOS or Android can download the app, sign up, and uh, send send a question or, or any message over to us. And we each spend two hours a week hosting virtual office hours online, and we also host guests guest office hours sessions occasionally. So that's Edge in a nutshell. And how I came here was sort of, I guess, through the Stanford network. So I was at Google. I actually wasn't looking to leave at the time, but um, was approached by a good friend from college who had been on the venture team before. And this is Anjane. And told, he told me about Edge, that KP was looking to start. And the number one reason, actually, I was really excited about joining here was the team. So I, I knew Anjane really well from college. Our third partner, Ronil. I also knew really well in college, and so the three of us were going to do this, and I was really excited about the opportunity to work with them and on a team that was just, you know, orders of magnitude smaller than what I was working with previously. So that really got me excited. I mean, in addition to both the investing side and still getting to spend part-time on product, so that that's the story of how I came to join Edge. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. And so I know you mentioned the, the 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 Office Hours app, which I find is really cool. You know, but can you tell us a little bit more about you know what the objective of launching that was, and what it was like to be part of that effort, and and what maybe some of the early results have been uh, from that app so far? Yeah, sure. I mean, the main goal is just to make ourselves more accessible. I think with if you're in Silicon Valley, I mean, you, maybe you know folks, and it's easier to get an introduction to VCs. But for the for the vast majority of the world, it like people have told us, you know, it's just, it's sort of like a black box. Like people can't really figure out um, how to get a meeting or, you know, they're just sending out cold emails and not hearing back. And so, you know, we wanted to create a channel, not necessarily for finding, you know, companies that we would fund right away, although that's, that's totally, that would totally be great. Um, But more just to say like, Hey, we're here and you don't need a special person to introduce introduce you to us to be able to talk to us you know we're just here we're gonna spend two hours a week talking to whoever wants to come online and we've gotten lots of different questions i mean everything ranging from hey i have this idea can you give me feedback which we get a lot to um you know i'm trying to put together this team like how do i make sure my co-founders the lead engineer is someone I want to bring on or questions around a financing round they're pulling together, which a lot of, a lot of times we say, like, you should probably ask your lawyer about this. And so in terms of numbers, I mean, we've had hundreds of conversations. Um, we've posted or we've probably hosted seven guests, guests on Office Hours at this point. And actually, one of the interesting things that we did was we started with iOS only and we wrote the app in Objective-C. And then we decided, hey, this is actually working. We should put out an Android version because a bunch of people are asking us to. So we actually rewrote it in React Native. And um, so we released the app in React Native for iOS first, and then we used the same framework to build it in Android using React Native for Android. And it was actually tremendously terrific because 
we didn't know we didn't know Android how to write an app for Android, but we knew JavaScript. And so that showed us the power of React Native, which we've written a post about and talked about. Um, and now we're seeing more and more startups come to us that are saying, you know, we're working on our apps in React Native, and we totally get we totally understand that because we had such a good experience with it. But going back to to the numbers you're asking about, we've had over 2,500 people download it. And then we've actually met with 11 companies that originally reached out to us on Office Hours. So pretty interesting. That's really cool. And why did you guys decide to go with like a, a chat messaging app versus something like video conference or, or something like that? Was there any reason behind that? The main reason we do chat versus video conference is because we can talk to multiple people at a time. And usually there's a bunch of people that are on office hours chatting with us. And then the other question people ask us is why we did one-on-one as opposed to group conversation. And we do one-on-one because we find that people are more willing to sort of ask more direct questions that they may not want to talk about if other people can, can see what they're asking about. What we do is if there's something that's particularly interesting in a conversation that we think would be helpful to others if it's shared, we ask the person for permission to post about it in a Medium post. And so we just we actually just posted a Medium post recently where we took some excerpts from conversations that we thought would be applicable to a broader set of founders and with permission reposted them. That's awesome. That's really cool. So I'm sure that, you know, it's it's probably in constant flux, but can you give us a, a, a brief idea of, you know, what your day-to-day role like uh, is like on the team? Yeah, sure. So it depends on the day. Um, typically, what happens here is Mondays and Tuesdays, we're mo- more focused on meeting founders and just learning about interesting investment opportunities that are out there. Most of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're focused on the products that we build. So that's how we split the time. And on the product side, I do a mix of you know working with engineering, designing, and I actually do a little bit of front-end engineering right now myself. It's about a 50-50 split, it ends up being... So what do you look for in terms of investment opportunities? And do you have any advice for startups who may be interested in raising funds at the moment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it depends a lot on the specific vertical we're looking for. I mean, I think the first thing is always the team, figuring out why they're working on this problem, how they got started on this problem. Our team in particular really likes to play with demos and prototypes. I think those sort of do great in speaking for themselves. So we usually spend a bunch of time doing that. But no, other than that, I think it depends a lot on the specific area. You know, like for marketplaces, we might talk a bunch about how how the founding team is thinking about building supply, building demand, what sort of traction they've seen, you know, getting customer acquisition costs down. But for VR, for example, we might care a lot more about like why is the technology defensible and, and trying out the demo, like I mentioned. So it kind of depends a lot on, on the vertical. But the first thing we always do is, you know, try to get to know the team and, and why they're tackling the specific problem. So what are some interesting technologies or industries that uh, you're exploring right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we talk about a few. I think in the two areas that, that we've spent some time on recently because we're adding them as focus areas at Edge are robotics and the future of work, which kind of go hand in hand. So on the future of work side, I think there's a lot of opportunity for building services and software that help serve the growing group of freelancers, independent workers, contingent workers in the United States. So that that group is about 40% of the labor force now. So I think there's I mean there's a lot of challenges for these workers, everything from 
scheduling work and work is different for, for different types of these workers, right? Like some people might think of it in terms of a client list and bookings. Some people might think of it in terms of shifts or tasks. So I think there's like a lot of opportunities for different verticals here, but like everything from scheduling work, figuring out when you should work, who you should, who your customers should be to uh, managing income volatility. Income volatility is huge for these workers because you're not getting this, you know, regular paycheck. And then, you know, there's a lot of other things, education, like when you're not working education and training, when you're not working with a you know, big structure organization, where are you going to get the resources for improving your skills? Insurance is another interesting area there. So, you know, that's something that's a space we've been spending time in, in recently. And robotics, we also think is interesting because there's this sort of convergence of, of mechanical parts becoming cheaper and cheaper um, and of computer vision becoming better and better. And, you know, we think a lot of the value that robotic companies are going to end up capturing is actually in, in the data sets that they build over time. And then they're able to build more and more valuable add-on services from that. I mean, I think in terms of other things in general that I just find interesting, there's a book I read recently called The Good Gut, which talks about the microbiome. So basically the collection of bacteria that are in, in, your, in the human gut and how that collection of bacteria can shape everything from your mood to, you know, obviously like your weight and, and health. Um, and I think that there's, there's a company out there right now called Ubiome that sort of lets you get a profile of your gut, but it's a, it's a one-time thing. And so I think there's something interesting around being more scientific about what food goes into our system and how that actually impacts someone's health on an individual basis. There's a study that, that came out of Israel recently that said that they, they, they did a bunch of pairings where they had people paired up and they gave them the exact same thing to eat and then they measured their blood pressure, or sorry, they measured their blood sugar after the meal. And it turns out that like a banana for person A is completely different than a banana for person B, probably because of, you know, different composition of your gut microbiome. And so I think that I would love to see a service that could build your personalized profile for what you, what foods you should eat and what foods you should avoid um, and, and be able to back that up with you know scientific evidence right I think that's an interesting field those are some interesting industries and I'm looking forward to see how they evolve um, in the upcoming years so what's next for you and KP yeah it's a good question I mean we're really focused on continuing to meet awesome companies continuing to build out our tools and seeing sort of to what extent we can we can make our inboxes no longer the rate limiter for for companies that want to you know get help. So yeah, just continuing down that path. That's awesome. Really looking forward to seeing what you guys can accomplish in year two. Do you have any recommendations on cool apps that you've downloaded or used recently, either personally or professionally? Hmm. Let me let me look at my phone. <laughs> There's an app called Hopper. I just started using it, so I don't really know like the backend technologies they're using or anything. But Hopper is basically, it's kind of like Hitmonk. So it's for flight search, but um, it's mobile only. And they send you proactive notifications when you've searched for a trip and the price for it has gone down. So I think that I, I like this model because it's sort of like, I feel like there's something in the background that's monitoring for good deals. And I know Hitmonk does this via email supposedly but for some reason this just feels like a better interaction to me and i think it kind of ties into like the whole craze right now i guess around bots because i think that it's it's sort of like tbd in my opinion how big 
that bots will really be. You know, some people say that, oh, they're the next computing platform. I'm not sure. But I do think that one of the interesting use cases of bots is the sort of like, hey, we can we can be your assistants in, in the background and pop up when you need us, which is what just Hopper reminds me of here. The other app that isn't super new for me, but that I use a lot is the MeFit app. So the MeFit is um, the activity tracker that's made by Xiaomi. So it's very comparable to a Fitbit, except or I got one when I was in Shenzhen and it was only like $25 as opposed to, you know, whatever it is here, like $75 plus. They're, they're coming out with a new version soon that has, you know, display face and can measure heart rate. And that's also going to cost me like $29. So it's really interesting to me how cheap hardware is in China. Xiaomi is a, is a Chinese company that actually started by making smartphones. And they're something like the fifth biggest distributor of a producer of smartphones now. They have all these other products that end up being great and really inexpensive by American standards. Yeah, those are some really cool apps. And, uh, you know, if you're into the whole fitness wearables and, and data visualization kind of stuff, uh, you should definitely check out Gyroscope. We actually just had uh, Madi, their CTO, on uh, a couple weeks ago to talk to us uh, about their app. Uh, I've been using it for the last little while, and it's really cool. They also built it, actually, you know, in React. It's, it's one of the largest uh, React apps on the App Store. Oh, very cool. Awesome. Well, I'll have to check it out. Um, so do you have any recommendations on just great content that you've come across lately, either a book, video, or blog post? So I mentioned that one about how to run a great beta, which I can send to you guys. Books, The Good Gut is that book on the microbiome that I read recently that I really liked. I also read Ready Player One, which is a nonfiction book about a dystopian future where VR has basically taken over. Highly recommended. Could not put it down. I recently started listening to the Hamilton soundtrack, which I totally love. And I can sort of start to see what all the hype is about now. Um, and I'll let you know if I think of any other recommendations. Absolutely. Those are, those are some really, uh, some really good recommendations. So we'll definitely make sure that we link to them so other people can check it out. Sounds good. So do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you live by and you think others should know about? Uh, let's see. That's a good question. I think I heard this from Marissa Meyer at Stanford a long time ago, but one thing that I try to live by is the definition of burnout and knowing like when I get burned out. And for me, as well as for her, I guess burnout is caused by isn't caused by like number of hours I work, it's more caused by not being able to do the things that I really want to do in a given week. And so no matter like what I have going on, if there's something I really want to do, the example I I give is I play in this adult kickball league, which sounds ridiculous, but it actually is uh, super fun. I've met a lot of great friends that way. And so that's something that like I have in my schedule and I like really try hard not to miss um, because I know that if I have to miss it for work or something, it'll just like bum me out. And that's sort of the cause of burnout for me. So basically just figuring out what's super important to me and making sure I have time for that. And then just working hard outside of that, I guess that's, that's, that's one thing for sure. That's awesome. No, that's some great advice to uh, end the show on Ruby. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was awesome to have you on. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much guys. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We couldn't do the show without your awesome support, so please leave us a review. Until next week.